Hello, Marvelites! Welcome to This Week in Marvel, episode number 355. I'm Ryan, a.k.a. Agent M. And I am Jamie, a.k.a. Agent Editorial. Yeah! Yeah! Uh, man, this is gonna be a happening this week. There's so much going on, so many things <laughs> I want to talk about, but the top news is the final gameplay trailer for Marvel's Spider-Man coming to PlayStation 4 on September 7th. That was released this week! There's so much Miles in it and villains. Rhino looks so neat and Silver Sable is in there. The song in the trailer is Superhuman by Campfire and it works so well. It is a dope trailer. And this is, it feels like it's so far away, but now it's not far away. It's not far away This at is all. like a couple of weeks now. Yeah. We have the demo here, the 15-minute demo, and so like every once in a while I could just go on it and just swing around and then it's cruel fate crushes me. Because then I'm done. It, it ends. I only oh. get 15 minutes of joy. Uh, but there's so much stuff that uh, I'm hyped about. I know some stuff that you're hyped about, Very. Jamie. First up, Marvel's Runaways premieres December 21st on Hulu with all 13 episodes dropping at once. There's a little bit of a tease on Marvel.com, and I find this line really interesting. Quote, someone sent a mysterious message to Jonah. Is there a mole in the Runaways? Ooh. Ooh. Is it Mole Man? Nope. It no? is not Mole Man at all. Oh, okay. Uh, not that kind of mole. Nope. Uh, the spy, spy secret spy, kind of mole? spy kind. Gotcha. Uh, I know what's going on. I say no more. Oh, secrets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Secrets. We got the full trailer for Marvel's Iron Fist, which comes to Netflix on September 7th. It's got uh, some really cool Danny and Davos action in there, plus Colleen and Misty and plenty of Iron Fist glowy moments. Ooh, lots of fist. We announced a new Black Order limited series this week, uh, and it's coming in November from writer Derek Landy and artist Philip Tan, who I am so hyped to see do this run. His art is gnarly, and it's creepy cool. I'm so excited for this one. And if you check Marvel.com and the Marvel social pages, you'll see some videos about our latest collaboration with ESPN for the college football playoff. And you know me, I'm a big sports man, but uh, Ron Lim did a really (laughs) neat Alabama versus Louisville homage cover, and I was actually in the video. And I gave some background on sort of the comic that is homaged in in this piece. And uh, it's pretty cool. It's a fun collab that we're doing with ESPN. Yeah, there are also additional covers on Marvel.com, so come to the site, see all of them. They're all very cool. Yeah, and uh, Maria Taylor, who's in the video with me, even though I didn't shoot it with her, I don't think I even met her, but we have her on Women of Marvel this week, so check out that latest episode. We teased the return of Uncanny X-Men at Comic-Con in July, and now we finally have some proper details. Oh, yeah, we do. The series kicks off November 14th with a 10-part weekly epic called Disassembled, and it is by writers Ed Brisson, Kelly Thompson, and Matthew Rosenberg, along with art by Mahmoud Asrar, Arby Silva, Ildare Sinar, and Perry Perez. There, I love these artists, especially if you listen to Marvel's La Polis. You know how much I love all of these creators, so I am super psyched. It is going to be wicked on Marvel.com. You can read interviews with the writers Ed Brisson, Matthew Rosenberg, and Kelly Thompson. And man, their insight into what they're doing. They've all worked on X books and so for the artists for that matter. And they talked about what's different about doing this, how they're working collaboratively, what they're going to be putting the X Men through. If you love listening and listening to writers talk about writing, it's great. If you love the X Men, it's great. It's just plain <laughs> great. I love talking to these creators. It's all on Marvel.com plus some cover art. So yeah. it's all there. It's a fantastic creative team. And they do work so well together. Like I know Matt and Kelly and Ed are constantly in, in just in each other's heads and talking about things and, you know, sharing their work to better themselves. They're just, they're terrific. Also on Marvel.com is a fantastic interview with the Life of Captain Marvel writer Margie Stoll. I'm super excited about this series. Uh, we... We may or may not have talked to Sana Amanath and Sarah Bronstad about the life of Captain Marvel and Carol Danvers on her 50th anniversary. Just, you know, a little hint, hint, wink, wink. But for now on Marvel.com, you can see Margie Stoll and what she has to say about issue one, issue two, and what's coming up for Carol Danvers in the life of Captain Marvel. 
Heck yeah. I want to give a shout out to uh, some folks on the team here, uh, the people who do our Marvel Becoming series, Jason Latour, Judy Stevens, and the crew who worked on this dope new episode. Uh, it's got this incredible Black Widow cosplay. We'll put a link in the show notes and the story, but it's really good, uh, and I know the team is super proud of it, and I'm super proud of them because they're great. And I like when they do cool things. Yeah. Which Jason, is all the time. Yeah. Oh, it, it absolutely is. Jason Latour on Twitter just said that watching this video brought a big smile to his face. This hard work and the love, the passion, the fans. Yes. Making making stuff that's cool. Making stuff that's cool is a great uh, thing that we all should do. But you know who does it? The folks behind the Marvel's Luke Cage music Ali Shahid and Adrian Young, and they're going to be our interview later on this episode. Before we get to them, though, we are going to have a bit of a discussion about annuals. And you're like, what the hell is an annual, Ryan? <laughs> well, I will tell you in a second. Uh, before we get into that, I just want to remind you, on Marvel's The Pull List, our picks for this week were Thor number four, Infinity Wars number two, Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man number 308, and Extermination number one. Plus, bonus pick of the year goes to Brew Force. <laughs> you like that? <sighs> now, sounds, sounds Jamie, forceful. who are you? Who, would, who? If you had to tag <gasps> yourself on the cover of Brute Force, who are you? I want to be the lion. Oh, you mean Lionheart? Yeah. The lion? Lionheart the lion. Yeah, I'm Hip Hop the kangaroo. <laughs> this, is, this is now established canon for this week in Marvel. So... To our annual talk, because this week, in addition to those awesome comics that came out, we had two annuals release. Astonishing X-Men annual number one and Cable and Deadpool annual number one. Um, so, what is an annual? Yeah, you Ryan, I'm taking a wild guess here, but I'm guessing it's an issue that comes out once a year. That is true 99.5% of the time there is one instance that i can remember where we had an annual that came out twice in one year That's i not don't know annual. why we did that but it happened anyway um, anyway <laughs> it, it is a larger than normal issue coming out once a year and from what i understand back in the day so Comics were categorized as magazines. Mm -hmm. um, they were larger. They were ma more magazine size than the comics we know now. But they were categorized as magazines. And the main distribution platform for comics was the newsstand. And there was all these rules and regulations. So, but to do an, an annual was a way to put out a 13th issue of a series of oh. a magazine that year. Sneaky. Yeah. And usually, you know, like an annual can have its own standalone story, such as with Cable Deadpool this week. Or it can be connected to the larger overall narrative, but not necessarily part of a particular story, such as Astonishing X-Men and how it connects to Charles Soule's run with the character X, as well as overall events that have been going on with the many characters in the book, especially, you know, you've got Gene and Bobby, Warren and, and Hank, these original X-Men. It really ties into everything that's been going on with those characters. Um, uh, many times it can have bonus stories, bonus materials. Uh, sometimes it'll be reprints that are in there. That was a big thing back in the, you know, in the 60s. It was, you weren't getting trade paperbacks. You weren't getting reprints of issues, so to speak. So if you missed Spider-Man's first appearance, what are you going to do? Okay. Uh, and some of them were just full reprints. Annuals weren't always new stories. And for a while, we also did crossover stories and events between various annuals. We'll get to that later. So annuals strike me as something, as an opportunity, when there's a story that doesn't quite fit into a narrative, there's a place for it in an annual issue. Would you say that's kind of true? Like something that didn't quite work, something they really wanted to do that just didn't really mesh. It could be, you know, it's any number of things. It could be, hey, we want to try these new writers and artists or this story's literally too big to tell in one issue. We don't want it to go over a bunch of issues. We want to tell this full story right now. Let's boom. Let's do it. Now, can you guess what the first proper Marvel annual was? Would you say Fantastic Four? Oh, you could say that. But you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. No. As least as my reckoning goes, I believe it is Millie the Model annual from 1962. There is a Strange Tales annual from that year, but it is just reprints. So I strike it from the record. Now, has Mil I'm intrigued by Millie. I found out this Millie tidbit before we started recording. And she was, you know, made for the female audience. She was a comedy book. And she had been going for almost 20 years before that. So her first annual came decades after she started. 
But has Millie ever shown up recently? It's probably Did been you know like five of? years, give or take. Millie's been, she's a long-standing Marvel character. Coming from a time when we weren't, it was bef- really like in the between of superhero times. So you have the original Marvel comics and then a lot of genre stuff. So there were the romance books, the comedy books, cartoon funny animal books. The horror books. Horror books, yep. yeah, the monster books. And then we get back to superhero books. So she, this annual comes at the beginning of the superhero books craze. But that's really when we start diving into things. So 1963, we see the first Fantastic Four annual. It has this incredible cover by Jack Kirby and Dick Ayers. Is friggin' Namor sitting on his throne. He's got this beautiful crown on his head. It is so Great. And what they do is they get to dig into the Fantastic Four Namor beef. And it turns into this giant epic war between the surface people and Namor's people. You know, you've got, of course, Namor, who's he's got the hots for Sue Storm. And that is really like his only true weakness. And that is sort of his downfall in this battle. Uh, This is sort of the blueprint for the way I think of the great superhero annuals. You have this huge story. You have great bonus material, such as galleries of characters. Tons of detailed info on the heroes, a schematic of the Baxter building. Uh, There's a reprint of the Fantastic Four Spider-Man story from Amazing Spider-Man number one in there. So it it fulfills all these different things. And it, you know, it was like, I think, 72 pages and it was a little bit more expensive than a regular book. But you were getting so much out of it. The first Amazing Spider-Man annual is in 1964. That's the first appearance of the Sinister Six as a group. It's an event, right? You've got... Spider-Man's villains have been showing up and he's been fighting them. And then this is the time where they bring them all together to take down Spider-Man. Had not been done. Now you think of the Sinister Six as so important to who Spider-Man is. Happened in an annual for the first time. I think this is the one that also has just this wonderful Spider-Man pinup by Steve Ditko. It's like classic Ditko Spider-Man. It's it's like signed by like, uh, hello from your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. It is just wonderful. Uh, The third Fantastic Four annual in 1965 is The Wedding of Reed and Sue. And the cover alone is one of my favorite 60s Marvel images. Uh, It's just packed with characters, which is also what's on the inside as well. It's it's just the best. It's basically every Marvel hero and villain of the time showing up for the wedding. There's a reason why everybody shows up. I won't get into that because I think you should read this. It's on Marvel Unlimited. And everyone starts fighting. It's just Wow, there's this one scene where you've got Electro next to Unicorn, next to like all these other characters who, these other villains that don't ever meet. They don't connect. You've got Avengers side by side with Fantastic Four, side by side with Daredevil. And it is huge. It, w- it was sort of unprecedented at the time. Uh, at one point, big old baby watcher uh, is like the watcher there. He, he just looks like a big baby. Uh, Did he officiate the wedding? No. <laughs> he should have. <laughs> that would have been great. Uh, Fantastic Four Annual 6 in 1967 is a great story of Reed, Ben, and Johnny versus Annihilus while Sue is giving birth to Franklin Richards. It's Kirby at probably the height of his powers. Like maybe some of the best Jack Kirby art you will see. It was one of Jack's, one of my favorite things that Jack Kirby does. He like these really weird trippy photo collages in the background and then his art over it. And it it pops up here and there and is just the most amazing art in the world. When we talk about how great the Fantastic Four is, you look at these annuals and go, oh yeah, this was just destroying every other comic book. Um, amazing Spider-Man annual number five, first appearance of Peter Parker's parents. It has a Spider-Man oh, versus really? Red Skull story. Yeah. Like this is, annuals were a really cool way to introduce things, to come up with things. To fill in some backstory blanks. Totally. Uh, Monica Rambeau first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man annual number 16 in 1982. And she was Captain Marvel at the time. She's now Spectrum. She is awesome. And you should read Next Wave. Have you read Next Wave yet? I've not read How Next Wave. How have you Wave. not read Next Wave yet? Oh my God. Next I've got Wave. a website to run. See? I don't care. Next Wave <laughs> is the best comic book. <laughs> I believe you. The end. Next Wave. Next Wave. Nick Lowe wrote a song about Next Wave. I think the lyrics are in the collection. Next Wave is the best. And and Monica plays a great part in that. When we talk about debuts of characters, yeah. this was here. 1977 annuals actually had a two-parter that is one of my favorites and a must-read for anyone who is a fan of Thanos, the Infinity Stones, and all that good cosmic 
weirdness. It, it's uh, Avengers Annual Number Seven and Marvel Two and One Annual Number Two, and they were a kind of cap on all the Warlock and Thanos stories that Jim Starlin had been telling. He writes and draws both of them. And seventies Jim Starlin is like crazy monsters and weird creatures and so much detail. They're really cool and weird and full of death and destruction and nihilism. Right up your alley, Jamie. Oh, I already love it. Yeah. In 1982, there's another Avengers annual I want to make sure we talked about. Uh, It features the first appearance of Rogue. It is Avengers annual number 10. It is a big X-Men and Avengers story by Chris Claremont and Christopher Golden. And it is crucial, super crucial for both Rogue and Carol Dan. Danvers, as it has Rogue absorbing Carol's powers and messing up Carol's life for years. It's a really, like, Carol loses a lot of her memories. She gets help from Professor Xavier. There's a whole lot going on here. uh, And it became a major sticking point for both of those characters because Rogue then had Carol, like, in her head a little bit. And that wasn't good. But really, Carol was like, what the hell? You're the well, worst. Naturally. Yeah, and actually Rogue was a was a villain at this time. She came in with Mystique and the uh, Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, but mm, there's so much more to it. And Rogue really has a great character arc coming out of this for, for many years. And it is, the art is gorgeous. Christopher Golden in 1982, just looking beautiful. So Fantastic Four Annual 18 in 1984 is the wedding of Black Bolt and Medusa. So... Weddings are also a thing that, because you could tell a big story, you could tell something interesting there. Yeah, I know that Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson, they got married in an annual. So that's 1987. That's uh, the wedding of Peter and Mary Jane. Oh, it's so 80s. Oh, yeah. It's a very 80s wedding. In Amazing Spider-Man annual number 21. And then, did you know this, Jamie? June 5th, 1987, there was a live enactment of the wedding. Stan Lee officiated it. It was before a Mets baseball game at Shea Stadium. This is a real thing that happened. This is the most gloriously New York thing I've ever heard. I was reading something that someone was upset that the Marvel did this at Shea Stadium because they thought, well, why didn't they just spring for going to Yankee Stadium because the Yankees are better than the Mets. But Peter Parker is a Mets fan. Yeah. He is a diehard Mets guy. Yeah, that is he is. part of his canon. So. so, according to Fantastic Four number one, which just came out, so is Johnny Storm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I forgive them both. They, they, everybody has their faults. Uh, so, cool memorabilia. As a Mets fan, I'll just stay silent. It's fine. Uh, you can go talk to Ron Richards and John Cirilli about your quote unquote great team. About our plight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, it's it's fun. Um, so that happened. So. Now we start to get into some interesting stuff. By 1988, we're starting to get into something different. We're getting into crossovers. And Mm. uh, 1988 was Evolutionary War. And that's across so many books. 11 books, I think. Uh, So think about it. 11 annuals that come out mostly in that summer all tie into one storyline. There's other backups. There's other stories that happen in those annuals. But they all have a theme that connects them together. This is my favorite thing about that. ALF, which we published comics for ALF back then. ALF had an annual, and I do believe there was a short evolutionary war story that ties into the whole thing. Uh, so, Do you know what has to happen now is an ALF-Howard the Duck crossover. I, I'd be surprised if there's not something somewhere there's along the There's got to be line. something. All right, so 88, evolutionary war. 1989 is Atlantis attacks. That's in 14 different annuals. And there weren't... As far as I remember, direct parts. It wasn't like, okay, read this issue for part one, then this issue for part two, but they all connected as a bigger story. Uh, And I think they all even had backup stories about this thing called the Serpent Crown, which was tied to the main thing. It's been a while since I read them, but uh, that's how it all goes. There's a really, uh, a a what-if story that I loved uh, that was about what if the heroes had lost Atlantis attacks and it is messed up. I just burned into my brain is this lizard version of Spider-Man just like, Yeah, yeah, like on the side of a building. And I was just like, this is disturbing and it's upsetting. I'm young. I don't understand what's (laughs) happening. Uh, That's been burned into my brain. It's so good. It's a Uh, little traumatizing. A little bit. So in 1990, things start to mix it up a bit. And Jamie, you wanted to play a little game. I wanted to play a little game to test your knowledge. I'm going to name some characters and you're going to name that crossover. Okay. First up, Fantastic Four, X-Factor, X-Men, New Mutants. Name that crossover. Well, this one is easy because it's Days of Future Present, which ties into the uh, extermination this week. 
Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Punisher, Daredevil, Wonder Man, Guardians of the Galaxy. Name that crossover. Uh, is this the Korvac one? No. Yes. It is, right? Yes, there is a Korvac. Oh, is it the, the Korvac quest? The no. Korvac effect? No. Uh, uh, uh. I don't, I don't, I don't have it. System bites. System bite. <laughs> yes. You know what? Because I have in my notes here that this is this is the same year that there's a, a couple of puns in the annual titles of the crossovers, and I love System Bites so much because bites is spelled with a Y. That's right. Not it is with an I, and you're like the System Bites. Oh. I love it. Okay. Damn it. Shall we try another? Yes. Okay. Captain America, Thor, Fantastic Four, Avengers. That's very general. I'll yeah, give there you another so hint. many. Okay. Um, they end up in an unassuming town of Timely, Wisconsin. Second tier Avengers. Gilgamesh, Dr. Druid, oh, my, my, my and Black boy, Knight. Dr. <laughs> Druid. It was Avengers, not Avengers West Coast? No, not Avengers West Coast. Okay. I'll give you another hint. Yeah. Rosebud. Oh, is it Citizen Kang? Correct. It's, it's, it's got... Yeah. Yeah, Citizen Kang because it's also another... Great friggin' pun. Yeah. Just, I, I remember I was like, oh, man. All right, all right. So good. Okay. Ready? Last one. Okay. Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, Avengers, West Coast Avengers. Give me something more. Terminus. The Terminus effect? Close. The Terminus conundrum? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it yeah, starts it's... with an F. So close. The Terminus factor. Terminus factor. I feel like you said it. I feel like you uh. said it, so I'm going to give it to you. Yay! Yeah. That was actually really awesome. <laughs> it is very hard. So, uh, but, so 1990, we do start to get some of those crossovers you were talking about. Spidey books, they have their own story. Like, uh, that's a thing that often happened in these was the Spider-Man books would sort of go off on their own. There was, like, Spider-Man and the Tiny Adventure or... Yep, uh, that's on here. Vibranium Vendetta or whatever it is. Uh, so 1991 is very similar. You have a bunch of smaller crossover events like Vibranium Vendetta in Spider-Man books. Subterranean Wars that goes across Avengers, Hulk, Namor, Iron Man, Avengers, West Coast. Kings of Pain. Ouch. Which is, yeah. Uh, it's... Sounds brutal. That's across New Mutants, New Warriors, X-Factor, and Uncanny X-Men. And I think it has oh. Mike Mignola covers, which is it's gorgeous. So 1992, again, smaller crossovers. Return of the Defenders, which had Namor, Silver Surfer, Doctor Strange, and Hulk, the original Defenders. 1992 was the year of the puns with Citizen Kang. You have System Bites. And the X-Books did Shattershot which I loved as a kid. You've got the Mojoverse, and it's really weird, and it's super fun. Then in 1993, they go in a completely different route. Each annual introduced a new character. Like, that was the the point, was to introduce someone to brave new ground into the Marvel Universe. And I believe each of them came with a trading card featuring that character. Oh, that's cool. Let me rattle off the names of these new characters. Because this is Primo. Chaos, spelled K-H-A-O-S. Killian, who I think could be used again. I actually really liked Killian. Uh, He's got a connection to the pantheon of Celtic gods, which I thought, like, when we have Asgardians, we have the Greek gods. I feel like the Celtic gods could be used more. Uh, Dream Killer. Legacy. Now, Legacy was uh, probably the biggest of all these characters. His name was Genus Vell who was the son of OG Captain Marvel. Oh. Uh, and he went on to actually have multiple series of his own under the name Captain Marvel. But he debuted with a terrible ponytail look. It's like he's got one of those masks that doesn't do anything. It just covers like part of his face and like maybe his ears and then a big old white ponytail coming out. And he's like 20. Uh, but he, he had very 1993 vibes and I'm pretty sure he's dead now. <laughs> uh, Nocturne, who is not the same Nocturne that was in the Exiles, but Nocturne. Last but certainly not least, let us not forget about Adam X, the Extreme. <laughs> Chin scruff, metallic costume, spikes, long hair, but also a top knot. He what? Is, I don't understand. He is beautiful. <laughs> uh, yeah, Adam X, like there was. 
there was all You're this like talk. Beaming. Yeah, I know. There was all this talk years ago about him potentially being the third Summers brother, and no, he was no. just a character. But it, it was it's fascinating. All 1993 was just about new characters. So 1994, things get back to relative normalcy for the annuals. Uh, after a while, though, they stopped numbering the annuals. They went with tagging them by the year of their release. 2001, uh, particular, I remember the new X Men annual introduced Zorn who uh, was a huge part of Grant Morrison's run. And his whole thing was his, like, brain is the heart of a star. This whole thing, he was a caged star, and he had this metal helmet on him. And if you've never read New X-Men, I am not going to spoil anything, but it is one of the greatest X-Men runs for my money. Uh, For a while, though, we really slowed down. We weren't producing annuals, few or no annuals for a couple years. And then they slowly came back. I wanted to point out, uh, sort of wrapping this up, the... Ultimates books. So Ultimates, they did annuals. Uh, The first one introduced the Ultimate Inhumans, including Ultimate Lockjaw. Ultimate Spider-Man annual number one hooked up Peter Parker with Kitty Pryde. The Ultimates annual that year was by Mark Miller, and it was just gorgeously drawn by Steve Dillon. It has a very messed up take on the Defenders. Then New Avengers number one, and that is The Wedding of Luke and Jessica. So we come full circle with the weddings being in the annuals. So that's 2006. They bring that tradition back. The next year, the 2007 annual, uh, New Avengers number two, it's just this wild story of the hood, evil demonic character, and just a ton of villains attacking the anti-registration Avengers team. It's intense. It's really, really fun. Uh, And then the 2008 Ultimate Annuals tied to the Ultimatum crossover. So by the end of, you know, sort of this telling you see that we get to some of these themes again and again and again and that's kind of why I love annuals I think doing standalones is a really intriguing idea because I think to that one Doctor Strange issue that Donny Cates wrote where he split off and with Chip Zdarsky wrote that Spider-Man talks to a spider thing Mm. Like, that could be an annual. Like, I want to see annuals that go really off the wall, that kind of just talk about something that's completely unrelated, takes our characters away from, you know, the daily grind of saving space and the universe and the earth and all that stuff and just kind of lets them live a wacky life. Yeah. Like like a sitcom. (laughs) Sitcom annuals. That could be a whole year, uh, like all sitcoms. Oh, man, now I'm going to think about this and, and write them in my head. So if you want to buy some annuals, you know what you need, the Marvel MasterCard. Thanks to our advertiser this week, Marvel MasterCard. You can get your own at marvelmastercard.com slash twim, and you you know you can get some really cool perks with it. Jamie, what are some of those perks? You'll earn 3% cashback rewards on comic books, movies, restaurants, and more with the Marvel MasterCard, and 1% cashback rewards on all other purchases. There's no limit on the cashback's rewards you can earn, and with no annual fee. So enjoy special Marvel benefits like three months of Marvel Unlimited for free, for no money. You get that Marvel Unlimited, you can read so many annuals. So many comics, so many annuals. Also, you can choose your superhero from one of Cool Six card designs, like Captain America's Shield, Black Panther, and Spider-Man, just to name a few. Visit MarvelMasterCard.com/twim to learn more and apply today. MarvelMasterCard.com/twim. All right, so our interview this week is with Ali Shahid Muhammad and Adrian Young, uh, the composers for all the music and Marvel's Luke Cage seasons one and two. We actually recorded this the morning, and I say the morning <laughs> after the premiere. So, <laughs> like, those dudes coming to the office at 9 a.m. and talking and giving some really cool information was awesome. Very gracious of them. Yeah, I, I was really excited to talk about them. You heard me geek out a little bit. The music is fantastic, as I'm sure you know, because you've watched Marvel's Luke Cage. Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorite soundtracks, so listen to these guys. Ali Shahid Muhammad and Adrian Young. What Yo, up? What up? What's going on, dudes? What's happening? How Chilling. you doing? Yeah. Uh, so I was listening to the Midnight Hour record, and I I listened to Luke Cage as well. Man, that is good. The bass wow. sound. Yeah. Like my wife is a bassist, yeah. and I was listening to it, and I was like, "Honey, this is you got to listen to this record." Uh, and she was just like, ooh. <laughs> that's um, nice. Yeah, it was. Tell her we said thank you. Yeah, you're thank welcome. You. That means um, 
she's like a, an ethnomusicologist, uh, and uh, she taught like the history of hip hop at Fordham for a while. Wow. Yeah. So, watching it with her, watching the first season with her of Marvel's Luke Cage, was was great because the feeling of the music uh-huh. through someone's eyes who lives and breathes music was really cool, and that that's, that's great. What you guys bring to it is just a feeling of warmth and and reality to the tones and everything. And I think, obviously, Cheo is probably part of that conversation. Absolutely, yes. What is that process like, working with Cheo, to come up with the score for the show? Well, it's great. I've known Cheo for a long time, and he tells a story of listening to... I can't remember, it may have been Steve Biko or whatever when Tribe Called Quest had just finished working on the song. So we've known him for a long time and admires his love for music. And he just has a great knowledge of music and in terms of the show and the characters, I think he had a feeling that he wanted, which is why he had come to Adrian and I to score it. You know, he's a, he's the captain. He, he, he tells us, we, we go into a spotting session with... Cheo and the music supervisors and um, he just lays it out like this is kind of the neighborhood and we know the language he doesn't give us too many details you know we both come from hip-hop and and we understand the source material that some of the greatest hip-hop songs were, were made from and so when Cheo just says like you know he gives us a name or or, or a title of a song we like okay we know how to do that you know and Adrian and I will then go in we record everything on two-inch analog tape, all uh, old tube compressors and just, you know, like great microphones, just to give it that authentic, like just punchy, warm sound. And whatever we see on that screen, based on the characters, we try to construct something that's really gonna just make the world feel alive. Yeah, I think the the analog recording is so crucially important for this project. Was the Midnight Hour recorded that way as well? Yes. Yeah, because like warm is a really good mm-hmm. word for it because yeah. you, you feel it inside you. But Cheo is great. <laughs> I, I don't think I've heard a bad word about Cheo. Cheo's, Cheo's the kind, kind of guy that um, really cares about people, yeah. you know. And um, one thing that we, we love about him is that as he seeks to move up, with whatever he's doing, he's always trying to bring the squad, you know. And yes, the character Luke Cage was created in the 70s, you know, but Cheo really curated this this world, this version of Luke Cage right now. And he had to do that by not only developing this modern narrative, but also putting together a quintessential team to deliver what he wanted to deliver, you know, from writers to directors, you know, and and he's an all-inclusive person. He's he's a very, very special, intelligent, and uh, I don't want to say demanding, but assertive person when it comes to getting what he wants. And, and with, with us, he gives us a carte blanche to do whatever the hell we want to do, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And but that's part of him, like knowing, hey, that's the expert of this. I'm gonna bring him in to do that. Mm. And if we got a problem with something, all we gotta do is say something to him, and he's gonna fight for us to get whatever we want, you know. So he's he's the man. Is it difficult for you now? You work with someone who is so he's fighting for you. He's so close to everything. Versus, you know, maybe if you come in just because you guys have a reputation. Well, uh, great. Uh, let me jump in right quick. Yeah. When it comes to composing, when scoring film or television, especially television, it's one of those jobs that are that where time is of the essence. I mean, you have you 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 know on on Luke Cage, we have pretty much like four days to get a score done, and it's a lot of music, especially the way that we do it because we're using all real instruments. Okay. So, what's what's difficult about doing other scores is when you're working on those timelines. And you have a boss that you don't agree with on things. I mean, you're part of the team, so you got to try to make it happen. But it's difficult when you're being an artist for somebody that doesn't understand what the art should be. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's when it gets difficult. But when you're working with somebody that really gets it and and wants to push you along, push you along with your journey, journey, and ex- wants to encourage you to expand upon, you know where 
you could go or what you can create. I mean, that's those are the best situations, and that's what we what we've had since day one with Marvel. You know, for Luke Cage. I think that when you have someone who has a clear vision and understanding of music as it applies to you know the world that they've constructed then yeah it it's just a ease of flow some of the other situations that we've worked in it also can be an ease of flow if someone says you know what i have no idea what the music sounds like but i know you you guys know and so you bring it to me and we trust you and we're going to go in sometimes that happens it's not that often sometimes people have no clue as to the music of the world that they want to deliver and that's when it is greatly challenging because, you know, you don't know which language you're speaking, yeah. you know, but we find a way to just make sure that we're authentic to what we feel is coming off the screen and the depth of the characters as we understand it and the emotion that we feel is trying to be offered and we do our best to suit it, you know, like that. Yeah. yeah. And with Marvel and with Cheo, I think it's there's obviously a lot of real specific thoughts and, and tones and things that you're going for. Were you guys Marvel has grown up? Did you read comics? Did you know, or is it like more because, oh, now Marvel's just everywhere. You can't really escape it with the movies, the television shows, all yeah. that stuff. When, when I was young, I collected a lot of comics. Yeah. Uh, when, more so when I was in like elementary and junior high. And then when I stopped, I stopped. I just stopped. I, and so working on, on Luke Cage... For me personally, it, it wasn't something about me being so much in the comics I wanted to get in. It was more so this is a television show that is being cultivated by Cheo, who is a legendary journalist in the hip-hop game, as well as a screenwriter. And he has something to say, and he has something to say about blackness in, in uh, the world of television. And he wants us to come help him say that musically. That's what's really special. And plus given the fact that Marvel has a really great platform to the masses to help spread this message that was special. And, and it's one of those things that, you know, speaking of the Midnight Hour, Ali and I had started that thing five years ago. And we had to put it on hold for Luke Cage because when that opportunity came, we said, yo, we got to stop everything else. We got to make this really special because it's beyond us. And as artists, when you see those moments, when you can participate in something that is so important that it's beyond just your personal career, that's what that was. Me, I didn't really grow up being into comics. Mm -hmm. I, I did collect some uh, Incredible Hulk pieces of vinyl. I don't know how I acquired it. I guess I was a super fan, but I remember at some point in my teenage years going through like my my mom's collection and stuff that I had, I was like, oh, got incredible Hulk records here. This is well, interesting. The stuff that I used, like, when I started scratching about, like, the age of 17. Yeah. You yeah, know, I, mean, I was like, oh, I could scratch this incredible Hulk What record. was it? I'm trying to think of what incredible Hulk vinyl there was. I don't, yeah. I, I don't remember. I'm going to have to dig that up. You have a record store? Yes. And hair salon? Yeah. So uh, what, what's that? Where is it's that? It's called the Art Form Studio. And... Uh, it's a hair salon operated by my wife, and then we have a record store, and we also have a really very highly highly curated book section as well, and um, and then we also have our recording studio um, in the building as well. So is that where you guys record Midnight Hour or other stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So I mean, we could we could fit a full orchestra in there. It's uh, it's one of those places that we want to be viewed as a straight-up Motown or a Sigma sound. I mean, it's it's very special. You know, if you if you get to L.A. and, you know, you should come by and see. I mean, it's it's very special. Nice. Yeah, I don't have a, a, a very special hair salon or record store or any of those cool things. We have in my studio a very well-curated uh, tea list. So if you're into teas... Um, <laughs> we got some chuckles in the background. What, what's your tea? What's your go-to? I don't. <laughs> me, keep it simple, green tea. Yeah. Um, but no, I just have a really cool studio space, and we, make, we have a lot of fun there. And yours is in L.A. Where's yours? Either? Mine's is in L.A. as well. Yeah. So his is in Highland Park. Mine's in North Hollywood. Nice. Yeah. Are you in L.A. now all the time? Because you, you're moved, from Brooklyn? I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And I got sick of the harsh winters, and I felt, you know, climate change is really affecting my ability to create. <laughs> mm. 
the winter is a little too hard for me. I just got sick of it. So I moved to Los Angeles for the sunshine. Yeah. I yeah. get that seasonal affective disorder pretty bad at times. Yeah. It's just like I get blue. Yeah. Mm. It's rough. It is rough. Yeah. Yo, get out, man. You could do it, man. You know. <laughs> I don't know, man. I've been at Marvel 12 years here in New York. So, I, I like I've never lived anywhere like outside 20 miles of New York City. But the sunshine, I mean, it's Anyway, your <laughs> listeners might not care about this part. <laughs> um, but you also do, uh, you've been doing Microphone Check podcast for five years? It's been about five year, years, yes. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. What, what, who are some of your favorite, because I'm sure you bring in a lot of friends, people you've known for years to yeah. do the show. Who are some of your favorite people you talk to? Well, Microphone Check, for the people who don't know, it's a podcast that began at NPR, and it started because one of the uh, senior editors at NPR wrote an article about old dirty bastard and it was about his lyrics like breaking down the lyrics and the meaning of the lyrics unfortunately this one lyric was out of place and I, I caught that and just reached out and um, we formed a relationship and out of that relationship came the podcast and I just wanted to um, I wanted the stories of rappers and producers of hip-hop and just people who are part of the culture their stories to be more realized than what you hear on records and so we, we spoke to people from Nas to Earl Sweatshirt to um, Layla Steinberg. Very compelling interview. Um, evidence. So Evidence had a, he shared something with us <laughs> pertaining to uh, him and Eminem. And when people come, they feel really safe, you know, at, at home. And we get kind of the stories that you might not get with other places that these people do interviews for. So it's really great to just have an extension of the culture and to get a, a deeper understanding of the culture. So I'm really proud of, of what we're doing with Microphone Check. Yeah, and listeners uh, can check that out on You can check SoundCloud. that out now. We, we left NPR, so now it is uh, exclusively on Spotify. On Spotify. Uh, last Tribe Called Quest Tour was finished up last year last year yes how are those like those final shows emotional yeah it was um it, it was great to touch the people and you know like go out there and just feel that and share this loss with the fans but it was it was also greatly difficult to stand on stage and um and know that Fife was not there. We we had a custom microphone made, you know, in his honor just to to just stay on the stage, and it would tear us up, you know. And to the to the fact that one of the shows, Outside Lands in San Francisco, we didn't make it because Q-Tip, he couldn't stand on stage anymore. The night before, we had played in Denver. And he said, he shared with the crowd that it was because of Fife that he's doing what he's doing. And and to not have him there, it just, you know, it was just hard. Yeah. It's, and so it's hard when people, you know, first of all, thankful to have that sort of love affair for 20, almost 30 years. And a lot of people in hip hop that have come up with you know, they then people are not checking for them like that. They haven't impacted the people like that. So we're really grateful for the love, and it's hard to say like what will happen in the future. But we've built a legacy um, that it seems to to continue to inspire. You know, young and old. I don't know, man. No, it, it, you know, it's it's interesting. In comics, characters come and go, books and things. But we always say like. But you always have those books, those things that meant so much to you, those characters, those stories. You can always go back to them. And I think yeah. that's the, you know, the legacy of, of great art. If it connects to you now, hopefully it connects to you again in 5, 10, right. 20 years. Yeah. You know, you go back. Like I, I gave Cheo some, some – uh, I was like ribbing him last time I saw him because uh, the first season was all Gangstar songs. And when I was a kid, I loved Mass Appeal and yeah. X Girl to the Next Girl. Like those yeah. were my jams. And – they weren't on the thing. And he was just like, man, but this is why, I like, you know, but he made a lot more sense in the choices that he made for picking those songs. But it's still, like, the things that we connect with, yeah. we're always going to connect with, hopefully. Yeah. And, you know, Tribe Called Quest is, yeah, it touches people. Well, the cool thing about what, what Chael's doing by naming the series by, like, notable hip-hop artists and albums is that it allows people to go back and fill in the gaps, you know, and, and, and to learn about if they didn't know anything about 
a premiere and guru, for an example, or Gangstar, you know, or Pete Rock and CL Smooth that you can go back and be like, oh, wow, this is different. Especially now because hip-hop is different right now. Yeah. You know, so if, you, if you're if you a fan of Luke Cage and you're like, oh, I heard that this is Gangstar. Who's Gangstar, you know? And then you may come to find out, like, oh, well, I know Prime. And so I like the music from Prime. Oh, Premiere did Prime. Oh, you know, how that chain, um, you know, unlocks. Yeah, we, uh, for Tribe, I remember, I didn't get to see you guys on tour, but I saw the SNL performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, the emotion was was there. Like, that, yeah. especially those, like, I was like, oh, man, we were watching that. I was like. That was heavy. Fife's yeah. mom was there. She didn't know that the picture was going to drop down. And when it dropped, I mean, like, it, it messed her up. And as soon as I got off stage, I just went to the dressing room and just cried my eyes out. It's it's a huge loss, you know, and, and Fife had a lot of love. You know, and the one thing I will say at his memorial, you didn't hear one negative word about him. And as, as feisty as he was and you would think that this guy had a constant chip on his shoulder, but he just was a little person with a big heart. And he he told the truth in his records. That's great. Yeah. Uh, so Midnight Hour has been in the works for five years. You yeah. released it the same month that Marvel's Luke Cage Season 2 comes out. How much were you working on either of them like together these last you know couple of months? Or was it like you had pretty much all done? Well... The Midnight Hour was started five years ago, and uh, we had to put aside because of Luke Cage. I mean, people have to understand Luke Cage was, especially season one, I mean, it was just such an all-encompassing endeavor for us to musically do that because we're playing live instruments and we're recording a tape. It takes a lot to do that much. So we just wanted to get a lot of things out of our life to focus because this was a moment. So when we stopped, we went back to working on Midnight Hour and commencement projects and then in working Luke Cage 2, we didn't have to stop because our, our process was already streamlined. So, you know, we were allowed to do more extra things. And uh, we were wrapping up Midnight Hour while working on Luke Cage season two. So this is another one of the reasons why we were afforded the privilege to perform as, as the Midnight Hour on, on, on this Luke Cage season two. So... The midnight hour, when you hear the midnight hour, it's it's us really being who we are because Ali and I, we just work very well together as far as producers. We It's, it's as if we become a whole new machine because I have my ideas, he has his ideas. But we, Even though our ideas are different, we always agree on everything. So when we come together to make things, it just makes the whole process easier and and all that. So the midnight hour really epitomizes that notion. That's got to be tough to find someone that you just gel with that easily. Oh, it's extremely. Well, it's not tough for a musician to find another musician that they like to work with. It's tough when you've been doing it for so long that your style is so curated and refined Mm -hmm. that you need somebody that could only, you know, work with that. So a perfect example is... um, if I'm working with um, a metal player, his his sonic sensibilities could not say they will could be different than my sensibilities for for bass because my sensibilities for bass is more so what kind of bass guitar did hip hop in the golden era want to sample? Okay, that's how I want my bass right now to sound. You mm-hmm. see what I'm saying? So like it's little things like that, like that. When I'm working with somebody like Ali, I don't got to worry about it. We know what we're going after when we're making it. So, you know, it just it just makes that easier and streamlined. What's, uh, what's next for you? We're touring the Midnight Hour right now, presently. Um, and we are so focused on that side of life. But um, there are other scoring jobs on, on the table. So we're just enjoying that in the moment. Going out, taking our horns, taking the violins. And, and hitting the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to wrap it up. Where can fans find you guys, find the Midnight Hour, find those tour dates, uh, all that good stuff? Uh, well, they could find us on our Instagram and Twitter handles. I mean, uh, I'm Adrian Young on both. So it's A-D-R-I-A-N-Y-O-U-N-G-E. And, and you can find me at Ali Shaheed. A-L-I-S-H-A-H-E-E-D on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, We also have the Midnight Hour 
Yes, and so. you, you could find out um, a lot of that by just following us, to be honest with you. You find everything. Yeah. But you could also go on artdon'tsleep.com for future dates and all that stuff, for tours and stuff. So, And linearlabsmusic.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thank you guys for coming. Cool. Thank all right, you thank guys. you, man. All right, I uh, hope you guys dug the interview, and uh, yeah, make sure you check out Marvel's Luke Cage, available now on Netflix. Time for our community section. Before we go there, I think I want to know what, like, what are your favorite annual stories? If you've never read an annual, tweet us. I'm curious about consumption of annuals. Maybe you've checked out the Astonishing X-Men annual or Cable and Deadpool or another recent one. Let us know. Use hashtag ThisWeekInMarvel. Email twimpodcast at Marvel. Dot com. Uh, first up on the community segment, I just want to give a shout out to Rodrigo Marcondes, who has been going through some stuff. He shared a bunch of tweets with us using our hashtag and using the Earth's Mightiest Show hashtag. So uh, hope you're catching up on everything and hope you feel better, buddy. Yeah, feel better. Thank you for getting in touch with us. We also have from Robert. He, this was to me, who says he totally agrees Marvel soundtracks are tops, and he listens to them all the time, at work, in the car, and most definitely while reading my comics. Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is the best. Just wish we had soundtracks for seasons three through five. Mm. Mm. Uh, but Simon Williams says his twim of the week for August 8th was Unbeatable Squirrel Girl number 35. The friendship between Doreen and Craven has been building since the first issue. It's nice to see the payoff from that also. He didn't know that Doreen spoke French. Oh, we oui. either. We oui, we oui, she does. Might be Canadian. Ooh, I don't remember. Is she? Well, I think, this certainly changes. I remember there's things. a story with her mom, and they go to a cottage, and specifically they call it a cottage because they're Canadians, and they they uh, don't use definite articles like it, it, in England because they go to hospital. In Canada, they go to cottage. I guess. Our last one in here is from Savam Agarwal, who says, thanks so much for that awesome interview in This Week in Marvel. He says this to Alana Smith and Tom Brevoort. He says, I am loving Fantastic Four even more now. Dan's plan for the FF is going to be big, and issue five in December will be the biggest. Hashtag Ben and Alicia. Oh, which, again, is definitely happening. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we promise. Yeah. Uh, next week is going to be uh, fun. We are actually going to be in Seattle. What's up, Seattle? The City of Lights. We're coming to you. The City of Angels. The City of Space Needle. Yeah. We're going to be there because uh, we're visiting Mopop to see the amazing Marvel exhibit that's going on there. If you're in Seattle, give us a shout out. Let us know. We're trying to put together something. But if not, go to Mopop. See the Marvel thing. It's, it's so cool. I'm going to pet that lockjaw. <laughs> I'm going to pet that lockjaw statue. Even if I have to sneak it. I just want to give him one pet on the head and tell him he's a good boy. Very good boy. So that's it for this week. We'll be back with more. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jamie. This is Marvel. Your universe. Your universe.